I want to open up the Word of God with you this morning, and I want to study with you, I want to look together with you at the book of Zechariah, the first chapter of the book of Zechariah. This is an Old Testament a prophet, the second from the last Old Testament prophet, if you have trouble finding it. But I began preaching through this book not too long ago in our church in Krapina, uh, because I feel like our church and believers in general in Croatia have a lot in common with Zechariah's audience. Zechariah was preaching six centuries before the coming of Christ. He's preaching to those Israelites who had returned to the land after 70 years of captivity. They've been in the land already 20 years. And that group of Jews was surrounded by enemies on all sides. They were very easily discouraged. They, um, uh, even within that group, there was a smaller faithful remnant. And in many ways, the Croatian believers are similar. They're definitely a minority in their country. And even within the group of believers, there is a smaller group of faithful believers who are faithful to the word of God, who are not compromising. 25 years ago in Croatia, there was a a war of independence. Croatia uh, got their independence. The churches were full. But in the past 25 years, one crisis after another has led to a, a, a failing of motivation, a failing of enthusiasm. The Jews in the land were back there 20 years. They had begun building, but they had also lost their motivation. One crisis after another, it seemed as if they faced a hard path that required perseverance and persistence. And maybe you feel that way this morning. There's a lot of uncertainty. What lies ahead? What will the fall bring in this very, very strange and, and year, strange year full of, of unexpected things. Over the past 25 years in Croatia, things certainly haven't developed to the degree that they had hoped, and maybe you're not this morning where you thought you would be at this point. For the Jews that were back in Jerusalem, after two decades, things just weren't moving forward. And therefore, there was a lot of disappointment, a lack of motivation, a loss of hope. The Croatians face economic crisis after economic crisis. They face cultural depression, spiritual blindness. And they've just kind of, uh, as a culture, seek to get along to survive. As soon as one crisis ends, they just brace for the next that will follow on its heels. And maybe you feel the same way, maybe especially this year. The Jews, six centuries before the coming of Christ, waited. And we wait. We long for the return of Christ. They longed for the coming of the Messiah. We asked, just like they do, when will God come and fulfill his promise? How long Oh Lord. But we must persevere. We must be persistent. And how can we do that? How can we carry on in the light of uncertainty, in the, in the midst of trials? 
Well, we need encouragement. We need motivation from the Word of God. And we find it in the first words of Zechariah's prophecy. This is a great encouragement, even though many in the church today are allergic to the words that we find here. But here is true hope. Zechariah tells the people in his day, and he tells us this morning, regardless how far you have wandered away from God, you need only one step to return. We need to only make one step to solve our biggest problem. If we have never truly come to God, or if we have wandered away from God, if we find ourselves deep in the rut of sin, or if we've committed one sin that has brought alienation between us and our Savior, we only need one step to return to Him. To restore our relationship with Him. This step is indispensable for salvation. But it's also essential for sanctification. That is our spiritual growth, our, our development, and our relationship with Christ. And so I'd ask you to stand with me and we will read from the book of Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 1. We will read verses 1 through 6. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your wicked deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with all our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of hope, these words of comfort that call us back to you. We thank you that you have made that path possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would bend our wills, bend our hearts to always be ready to return to you as you reveal our sin, as you reveal our trespasses, to us. Draw us truly into the heart of Christ this morning, we pray, as we study your word. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Zechariah calls upon Israel in his day and us today to return to the Lord. This word return is an Old Testament 
synonym for the word repent. In fact, often it is used two times in a row, return and repent, return and repent. And it reminds us that no matter how far we have strayed from God, there's only one step back to him. The passage begins in the eighth month. So he finds Zechariah beginning to preach two months after his colleague Haggai began to preach. Haggai, the book previous, a short book, who, and his main message, the main message of the prophet Haggai was, let's go, let's get going. Let's build this temple. You all live in paneled houses. You all live in, in nice houses. But the temple has not been rebuilt, and we need to do that. We need to take care of God's house. And so Haggai called the people to proper values and to excellence in worship. And then Zechariah adds his voice to Haggai two months later. And the text continues and says it is the second year of Darius. Now this might simply seem like a time marker, but it's a reminder of something else. In the Old Testament, it is rare that you find time marked by foreign kings. But Darius is not a king in Jerusalem. He's a Persian king. It reminds us that there's a problem. There is no king in Israel. They are back in the land, but things are just not right. There are still promises that are unfulfilled. They still do not have all that God has promised them, planned for them. Even though they've returned to the land, their history is still being marked and controlled by foreigners. Just returning to the land is not enough. This is not what they had hoped for. And in order to encourage the nation, Zechariah begins his first sermon with these words. The Lord, Yahweh, was very angry with your fathers. Now imagine, I'm supposed to teach homiletics, uh, expository preaching coming up this semester. I, I certainly will not tell our students, start your ministries with these words. I doubt the students of expositors or uh, counsel to do the same thing. This is a pretty bold start to a ministry. The Lord, Yahweh, was very angry with your fathers. But what we find here is the catalyst for repentance. The catalyst for repentance. Zechariah points out the failures of Israel's past and the transgressions of their fathers so that he can call the current generation to repentance. God hates sin. The Psalms tell us that God is angry every day over unrighteousness. But this is our catalyst for repentance. The thing that awakens in us the need, the understanding of our need to repent and return to God. This is not some eccentric message of an ancient prophet. This is not the result of of some overzealousness of a young theological student. The Bible affirms repeatedly that sin provokes God to anger. If you remember, when Israel, straight out of Egypt, straight out of, of captivity and slavery, 
They're waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. They're getting impatient. And so they turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, build us a golden calf. Build us a god. And Aaron does that. And and then he, he presents it to the nation. He says, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And they, they feast, they party, they bow down and they worship. And God says to Moses this in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Those are terrifying words. Leave me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them for their idolatry. Sin, idolatry, our transgressions, they provoke anger in the heart of God. David says in Psalm 5.5, you hate all who do iniquity. And we may be quick to respond, or maybe we said in the past, we've certainly heard other people say, no, 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 no. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Look, God is holy. God is not man. God is not like man. God can certainly love the sin, sinner and hate his sin. But at the same time, God can, can at the same time hate the sinner and perfectly love that sinner. God is not like us. Do not be deceived. The Bible affirms that God hates all who do iniquity. He despises sin and he is angry against sin. The psalmist in Psalm 89, verse 46 says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? And God's wrath is not just an Old Testament truth. We know in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it states that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Later in chapter 2, Paul affirms, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now listen, beloved. We rejoice that the church of Christ is not only preserved from the wrath of God, but we're even preserved from the hour of wrath. That is a precious promise to us. But we dare not let that precious promise encourage us to ignore our sin as if it's all the same to God. We belong to Christ if we have come to him in repentance. And he will never love us any less because of our failures. But we cannot let those precious truths allow us to make peace with our sin. We need to strive forward for holiness. We need to walk the path that is laid out before us in this passage. There are other verses that talk about God's attitudes towards sin and sinners, that God is a God of wrath. But we'll leave this theme for now. And even though this is a relatively harsh introduction to a sermon, it is true. God is enraged at sin. 
And that anger towards sin is for us a catalyst to repentance. But Zechariah continues in the third verse. Look there with me. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me. Here we have the call to repentance. The call to repentance. Return, repent, come to me. The Almighty God over armies of angels says, come back to me, turn towards me, turn around and come back toward me. Repent, return. This is a call, but it's also a command. God requires that the sinner make a change of direction. Stop going from me in pursuit of your sin and of self. Turn around and come to me. Turn from yourself. Deny yourself. Deny who you are. Deny your identity. Turn from your sin, from your desire to rule yourself, and come to me. The Almighty God requires this of us. And you must understand, God speaks to the, to the nation through the prophet, but he speaks to a nation of responsible individuals, and each one of us have the responsibility, come back to God, return to God. Turn and repent. Come to me. This is a path of only one step. Come to God for salvation. Return to God for acceptance and forgiveness. Regardless of how far you feel right now from God, there is only one step to return to Him. A step of repentance and faith. Zechariah goes on to to explain, to to, uh, relay God's message. What are the consequences of repentance? What are the consequences of repentance? Look further in verse 3 with me. Therefore, the verse starts out, Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me. And then read further, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. How does God react to our repentance? He comes to us. He comes to us. Return to me that I may return to you. This is extravagant grace. This is inconceivable mercy. This is the astonishing response of a merciful God who will do all that is necessary for us as sinners if we repent to have fellowship with him. This is inconceivable. The condition is repentance, one step. But when we return to God, he runs toward us like the old man in the parable who runs toward his prodigal son coming home. This is scandalous mercy. This is undeserved grace. But this is genuine mercy that a forgiving God who offers to sinners an opportunity to have a relationship with him calls to us to bow our head, to fall on our knees, to cry out to him for the forgiveness of our sins. And no matter how far we have strayed from him, it is only one step back. Therefore, the message about our sin, 
about God's wrath, about our need for repentance. This is the only message of hope. It is in God's very nature that we find hope as sinners. He is a merciful God who forgives graciously the repentant sinner. He takes away our guilt. R.C. Sproul says that the guilt is the most powerful destroyer of joy there is. Maybe you have lost the joy of your salvation. Maybe you this morning feel estranged and alienated from God. He calls us back. Now, now certainly there is a place for guilt in our relationship with God. When we sin, we should feel guilty. But the guilt of sin should yield to the balm of grace. It is not God's desire for us that we live as his children under inordinate guilt. He washes away our sin. He washes away our guilt. He restores to us the joy of salvation that comes in a healthy relationship with him. So have you lost the joy of your salvation? Maybe you've wandered away from God. Maybe you need to cry out to him to expose you. Cry out to the Holy Spirit to expose you. Maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you've allowed some of the attitudes that you consider virtues to really become masks for God-dishonoring vices. Maybe your tolerance or your great-heartedness is foolish naivety or even fear. What do I mean by that? Maybe, maybe as we talk to people, we think, oh, uh, I disagree with that, but it's better not to say anything right now. I'll leave the door open for a conversation later. That may be wise. That may be fear. We need to examine ourselves. Maybe our passion for truth has become judgmentalism and and stubbornness. I think we all deal with elitism. Over the past few months, I know that I've dealt with the this uh, attitude that, you know what, I'm going to church. (laughs) Everyone else seems to be compromising. Maybe their church isn't that important to them. Maybe their ministry isn't essential. And we even driving to church can look around and think, hmm, I guess they're not meeting today. And that passion and love for Christ and love for his people can very easily bleed into elitism, self-serving judgmentalism. Our hearts are deceitful and we dare not pat ourselves on the back. We dare not trust our own self-evaluation of our spiritual state. But regardless of what the Spirit exposes or the Word of God makes clear about our lives, the step back to God only requires one move. God says to us, return to me and I will return to you. There is no greater hope than this. If you have never come to God, this is your hope. If you have deceived yourself and and all of us, This is your hope. If you have hardened your heart, if you have 
uh, turned your back numerous times on God. This is your hope. If you've slipped and fallen, this is your hope. No matter how far you have wandered from God, it is only one step back to a relationship with him. Return to me and I will return to you. But Zechariah goes on. He's not finished. He offers us a serious warning in verses 4 to 6. We've seen the catalyst and the call and the consequences of repentance. But now we see the case of unrepentance. The case of unrepentance. The example of impenitence, obduracy, stubbornness. Zechariah returns to the example of the fathers in the fourth verse. Look there with me. And he says this. Do not be like your fathers. To whom the former prophets proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me. Notice how, how Zechariah uses repetition to emphasize God's attitude. Their ways were evil, their deeds were evil, they did not listen, they did not heed, they were not ready to examine their own lives. Their understanding of of sin only applied to others. We've all been (laughs) caught in that attitude, right? I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message. They were not ready to examine their own lives. Beloved, we are all like these fathers on our bad days. And even sometimes on our good days. We are satisfied to confess our sin. Sure, sin soils and and stains everyone. But do we understand that it soils and stains everything we do? Are we satisfied to confess our general sinfulness? Yes, indeed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But are are we ready to say, we're sinners? Our deeds are often evil. Our motives are often stained with self-interest. We're much more at home speculating on the specific failures, the transgressions, and the evil motives of others than examining our own deceitful hearts. And Zechariah says, do not be like them. Do not be like them. God called them to repentance. He said to them, return to me, and they didn't listen. But again, I remind you, this is good news. This is good news. We are all sinners. We all sin, but the call of repentance has come out to us. And all that is necessary to return to our merciful creator is one step because Christ has done all that needs to be done in our place. We only need to take one step of repentance and faith. Zechariah concludes his message and he describes the consequences of of unrepentance, the case of unrepentance and the consequences of unrepentance. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. 
Zechariah says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? You see that word there, overtake. That's a uh, military term. It's, it's used when one army overtakes another. In the Old Testament, uh, fear can overtake someone. Uh, um, enemies can overwhelm someone. Uh, armies can overtake someone. Even God's curses can overtake someone. Zechariah asks, where are your fathers now? The prophets warned them, but they're not around anymore. My word then went into force. It invaded their lives. It overwhelmed. It extinguished them. Judgment follows the unheeded call to repentance. This is the consequences of an unrepentant, unexamined life. This is the consequences of hard-headedness, of spiritual apathy. This is the consequence of self-satisfaction with our own stale spiritual state. They did not listen in the past, and they are no more. They went away into captivity. They went away into a foreign land, and they died there. They paid the penalty. They were not ready to make the one step back to God. They did not want to come to him with repentance and faith. Now, as we study this passage, I just want to make a few observations and applications. First of all, we have a a response here. If you look with me again at at verse 6, and the second half of verse 6, we read these words. Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us, in accordance with our ways and with our deeds, so he has dealt with us. The text says they repented. Now, is this true repentance? I don't know. It's hard to say. It is true of repentance like many other things. Only time will tell. Uh, Any of you who have kids understand that kids can respond seeking forgiveness, but only time will tell whether that's truly genuine. Time and truth go hand in hand. And unfortunately, time often judges repentance, our repentance, as wanting, as insufficient. Often our repentance does not pass the test of time. Maybe we even need to repent of our repentance. On the other hand, we need to be very careful. I've ministered in a Catholic country for 22 years. I was not Catholic um, growing up. And it's really fascinating as as you look at the Catholic faith, how they have come up with systems upon systems and assignments upon assignments in order to do penance. To earn your way back to God, to, to put God in your debt by your different works and deeds. And honestly, I think sometimes we struggle with a kind of evangelical penance. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but I, I know that sometimes I wonder, have I repented enough? Am I sorrowful enough 
over my sins. And we, we can fall into a trap of thinking, uh, I, I, need to, I need to at least a week be, be sorrowful over my sin before I can really enjoy the, the joy of salvation. Have I, have, I, have I groveled enough before a holy God? And, and honestly, it's a struggle. We, we may examine our repentance and, and not really know. There is a tension there in the Christian life. We should sorrow over our sin, but at some point that sorrow does need to yield to joy. Weeping in the night, joy in the morning, but how we make that transition can sometimes even be difficult for us to tell. We need to be aware of evangelical penance. But we also need to be aware that our heart is ready to deceive us and cut us far too much slack. And we need to repent of our repentance. A second observation Sometimes people will react and say, no, 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 you cannot combine repentance and faith. We are saved by faith alone. And I affirm, along with you, I believe, that we are saved by faith alone, not by works. But that faith that saves us is a repentant faith, a faith that denies itself, a faith that turns from sin and to God. Faith and repentance are two sides to the same coin. We cannot divide them. Without doubt, we are saved by faith, but it is a repentant faith. And to prove this point, I would just draw your attention to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we have the, the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. And Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He strikes the same note that Zechariah strikes at the beginning of his ministry. And if that's not enough, we can turn over to chapter 4, verse 17, and we read these words. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, From that time... Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are saved by faith alone, but that is a faith that is inseparable from repentance. I believe Zechariah got his message right. He's in good company as we see with John the Baptist and our Savior. So we've seen the catalyst the call and the consequences of repentance. That God is angry at our sins. He calls us and tells us, return to me and I will return to you. It is always only one step back to God. And we've seen the case and the consequences of repentance. God's work, words will overtake us. They will overwhelm us. So if today you are ready to come to God on his terms, not on your terms, but on his terms. And to start a relationship with him, the first step for you this morning is repentance. We all come to God by the same path, a 
path of repentance. But brothers and sisters, I also want to remind you that as important as repentance is for our salvation, it is likewise important for our sanctification, our growth. There is a repentance unto faith, a repentance that saves us, but there's also a necessary repentance every day of our lives that draws us closer into the heart of Christ, as we sang about earlier. It is a daily discipline. If we want to grow, if we want to move forward with Christ in our relationship, then the next step in that process is repentance. Repentance with faith. It is a daily discipline. I want to close with the illustration from Jesus. If you remember in John chapter 13, we have the record of Jesus in his last night with the disciples. And before he shared a meal with his disciples, he did something for them. Do you remember what that was? He washed their feet. So he comes around and he comes to Peter and Peter says, Lord, under no circumstances, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says this to Peter. Peter, if I do not wash your feet, then you will not have any part, no share with me. And of course, Peter responded then, then wash me, wash me completely, wash me head to toe. But Jesus answers Peter and he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. Now listen. We are bathed. We are clean if we came to God in Christ with repentance and faith. Glory to God. This is the basis of grace and, and all that Jesus has already done in dying in our place. All that is done is necessary. By repentance and faith, we are once and forever made clean and our blessed, blessed Savior, blessed Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. We are his forever. Nevertheless, every day we are dirty again. We are impure. We are stained. And every day we need to confess, we need to repent, we need cleansing. Really, we need it multiple times a day. We are in a constant battle with our sinful deeds and our sinful thoughts and our sinful motives. We would expect Jesus to say, if I do not cleanse you, then you have no part with me. You're not saved. But that's not what he says. He says, Peter, you are bathed. But if I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash that filth every day that accumulates, then you have no part with me. And beloved, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we sustain ourselves by our repentance. I'm not saying that we earn our sanctification or that we hold fast to God through our repentance. We do this for our sake not for God's sake. God holds us fast. We are firm in the hand of our Savior. We are saved once and forever. 
but in order to maintain our relationship with Jesus and, and for it to go forward, to, for it to, to be healthy, in order to have that restored relationship with our Heavenly Father, we must seek forgiveness, confess our sins, and repent on a daily basis. Not to earn our salvation, not even to earn our sanctification, but because we have a relationship with Christ that we want to be growing, developing, that we may enter into his heart, enter into full joy with him. If we do not do this, Jesus says, you do not have a part with me. So don't wait. Don't hesitate. This is God's grace to us. This is good news. No matter what we've done in our past, no matter what we've done this day, there is always a path back, and it's a simple one-step path back to God, repentance through faith. Just one step back. No matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many times you've turned your back, no matter how many times you've ignored the call, God calls again. Return to me, and I will return to you. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Almighty God, with armies of angels at his disposal who could bend your knee if he wanted, says, return to me and I will return to you. And when we come to him in repentant faith, broken in spirit, poor, then as we read earlier in Psalm 113, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He cleanses us again. He washes us again. And he makes us to stand with princes, with the princes of his people. Beloved, let us go from here resolved to examine our life, yes, but also to cry out to God, examine me. My dear friend once said, prayed, Holy Spirit, examine us. Because when we examine ourselves, we tend to, to find only what we is pleasing to us. We need not trust ourselves, our own self-evaluation. We need to cry out for God's grace and open ourselves up even to one another so that the light of the truth of the word may expose us and we may return again anew to God in Christ that he may return to us. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can rest in him, that we don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to earn your favor. That you call us to make one step. 
Give us the courage to do that. Those who have never done that this morning, I pray that you would give them the courage, give them the joy, uh, call them to, to understand that in Christ they will find far more satisfaction than anything this world has to offer. And when we become stained by this world, distracted by our circumstances, when we wander away, Lord, call us back and help us to see how far we've strayed from you, but how close you truly are that we can return to you and you will restore our joy and our relationship with you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.